I mentioned already that this morning, uh, the section of 2 Corinthians that we've come to is a section about the spread of the knowledge of God through the world. The question I want us to take up this morning is simple. How does knowledge of God spread through the world? I think that's the question Paul's addressing. That's the question I want us to take up with. But I'm just going to start with a little bit of honesty, okay? I'm pretty sure that's not a question you came here asking this morning, is it? You know, I really hope when I get there to Trinity this morning, what we're going to be talking about is, what I'd really love to hear someone speak to, how does knowledge of God spread through the world? Sometimes... Sometimes we're able to frame sermons on Sunday mornings as, as, uh, as answers to questions that you're already wrestling with, as, as nuggets of insight into problems you feel. Sometimes the opposite happens when we walk through a book text by text. One of the reasons that we like to go through books the way we do here on, uh, on Sunday mornings, just taking whatever comes next in the in sequence, verse by verse by verse by verse, one of the reasons we like that approach is that sometimes we confront texts that aren't talking about things we were already thinking about, that reframe what kind of questions we should be asking, that direct us to be interested in things we maybe weren't interested in already but should be. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us, that it speaks to us words that he wanted us to hear. And if it comes from God, then the question is not why should we care, but what does it say? Our job is to understand it on its terms and then see why we need what it says, whether we realize it or not coming in. And so this morning, I want us to follow Paul's question. And by the end, hopefully understand why it's such an important question and why his answer to it gives such hope, such purpose to each one of our lives. I want us to see see how does the knowledge of God spread through the world. That's going to mean following Paul, Paul's discussion of what God is doing to spread knowledge through the world, what Paul is doing, his role in it, and that'll set us up to look at what we should do. Those are the three steps I want to take this morning. What God is doing to spread knowledge of him through the world, what, what Paul is doing to spread this knowledge through the world, and then that will help us to see what we should be doing. I'm going to read the text here, but I want to put something on your radar before I do. You're going to notice, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians, and you're going to notice that, that Paul is talking again about travel plans. If you've been with us for the last few weeks of the series, you know that he's talking a lot about travel plans. The whole first couple of chapters of the letter is all about why he did and didn't do, go here and, and, and not there. Why he told them he was going to come and then didn't come and then what that means about his character and, 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 and reasoning behind the different choices that he made and all this. He's been, he's been going back to that drum, beating it over and over and he, and he starts the passage this morning on that same topic. What his travel plans have been like. But then you'll see that that this change in travel plans that comes out in verse 12 and 13 sets him up to give thanks to God for what he sees God doing, even when his plans aren't what he had thought they would be. That sets us up to understand what God is doing in our lives as well. I want you to, I'm going to invite you to stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to, I'm going to read verse 12 to 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. This passage, which starts with more details on Paul's travel plans and the unexpected last-minute changes to what he planned, quickly turns into a celebration of God's work to spread knowledge of God everywhere. And it gives us a window into what, how Paul understood what his own life was for. Did you notice that after Paul said he came to Troas, he left Troas, he went to Macedonia, he turns in verse 14 to thanking God? This whole passage from 14 to 17 is under an umbrella of Paul celebrating what God is doing. It's a thanksgiving passage, it's a prayer almost of thanks for what God is doing in the world. It assumes, in other words, that God is the main actor here. That God's the one who does the work. So what does he thank God for? What is it that Paul is thankful God is doing? Verse 14 answers that question. He's thankful to God who leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, that's good. Moving on. Not exactly. What is this triumphal procession that he's talking about? Why would you give thanks to God for leading us in triumphal procession and spreading fragrance of knowledge everywhere? Still got questions here. It's, it, it, this, this triumphal procession is kind of like a victory march that God is on through the world, spreading this fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. And when he uses this triumphal procession language, what he's using is actually not just a flowery way to say we're walking with our heads high. It's actually a technical term about something very specific. He's referring to a Roman practice from the days when the Roman Empire was spreading all across their known world, encompassing millions and millions of people in who knows how many square miles of territory. When this Roman Empire was expanding all over Europe and even into Asia and Africa, their expansion meant war. It meant fighting against people they wanted to colonize, who didn't want to be colonized. And then once they'd colonized them, it meant fighting against people who would rebel against them. Because once you've been colonized, no one likes to stay that way, right? So there was constantly rebellions throughout the Roman Empire. And the Vandals or the Goths or the Huns or whoever would, ri- would rise up. And Rome would have to send soldiers out there to do battle with them. And when news of this battle would go out, there'd be a kind of question hanging in the air for the Roman Empire. Like, what's going to happen here? On the, 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 the fate of this battle hangs the fate of their empire. 
More often than not, during the heyday of the Roman Empire, they won those battles. And when they won those battles, news would trickle back into the home front that the battle had gone well. Then the soldiers would draw closer. And as they got closer and closer, as they entered the, the city of Rome, they would form up into a parade, a kind of victory march. A very specific kind of tradition that the Romans practiced. At the head of it would be their main leaders. The, uh, perhaps the emperor, the main generals who had won that battle. Some of the officers maybe would form up at the beginning. But then in the, in the back, behind those leaders, would be captives, slaves now, captured in battle, decked out fully in the, whatever, whatever was their, their customary clothes from their region. Something that would make them look exotic to Roman eyes. They would be, they would be fully decked out in, in whatever their, their traditional customary dress was. They would be led through the middle of the town. Behind them would be incense swingers. Spreading this fragrance as part of the parade and much celebration. It was like a really dark, ugly, morbid version of what one of the, one of the Super Bowl teams tonight is going to do tomorrow. Either in Atlanta or in Boston, there's going to be a kind of victory march where the team will be up on their floats and they'll go through masses of people who will be screaming their praises, celebrating their victory. And that's pretty much what this was. Now, wherever Paul goes, Paul sees himself as part of God's victory march. He sees his life as caught up in this symbol of a kingdom that's spreading everywhere over all the earth. This other phrase that Paul mentions in verse 14 helps to fill out this picture. He's, he's giving thanks to God who's always leading him no matter how much his travel plans may change, no matter how unexpectedly, how quickly, he trusts that God is leading him on this victory march where his kingdom is spreading everywhere. Now he fills it out with this other phrase in verse 14. Through us, Paul's saying through me, through my ministry, wherever I happen to be, Troas, Macedonia, Corinth, wherever, God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him. It's also probably a reference to that Roman procession. They'd have people in this parade, as I mentioned, carrying incense, spreading the smell of victory wherever they went. In this case, the smell that Paul's saying is, is using as a way of talking about knowledge of God. And not just knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. A kind of personal and intimate relationship with Him. So what God is saying, put it all together, what Paul is thanking God for doing, what Paul is saying about God, is that He's moving. He's on the march. He's covering the globe. Bringing people from everywhere into relationship with Him. He wants, in other words, relationships with people all over the world. He's not a territorial God. He's not in the back pocket of one nation or another. His reign is global. And not just His reign. It isn't just His power that's global. His love is global. His desire for people is global. There is no one anywhere that He doesn't want to be known by, loved by, or to love There's no one that he's not interested in. And he is the one who's spreading this knowledge. Paul's just his instrument. Led around wherever he sees fit. Whether it's Troas or Macedonia or Corinth or wherever. He's in God's triumphal procession. 
spreading knowledge of him everywhere. And before we move any further, I just want to make sure we see that there is a built-in sense of calling here for every Christian. For you, if your life belongs to Jesus, wherever you are, your job, your friendships, your neighbors, whatever, wherever you are is a deployment in the victory that God is winning. Now, Paul's, Paul's language in verse 14 about God using us to spread the knowledge, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere sets us up to that next part of the answer to this question. How is knowledge of God spreading? Well, God's doing it. He's marching over all the globe by his own initiative, by his own power. He is spreading knowledge of him, winning relationships to himself. But what's Paul's role? This, this, this part takes up the rest of the passage. Verses 15 to 17 are all about Paul unpacking his role in this victory march that God is spreading over all the earth. I want to track with Paul's thinking before we lock in on our own responsibility, before we, before we take another turn and try to see what this means for us and our calling as Christians. I want to make sure we understand what Paul is doing, how he sees his own role. One of the reasons I want to spend some time on this is that it's not crystal clear where Paul fits in this image of, the, of a triumphal procession, this image from Rome's history, from Rome's practice, where is Paul in this parade? D- different people, different experts, scholars on the New Testament writing about this passage disagree with each other about what Paul's role is here. Some people think that Paul's seeing himself, because he's saying God is leading us in this procession, Some people think Paul is saying that he's putting himself among the slaves, among the captives, among those who are on their way to execution. That Paul, to be led in a triumphal procession is not a good thing necessarily. It's to be conquered, defeated, on display before execution. And honestly, that does fit pretty well with how Paul describes his life in this letter. He's writing to... Corinthians who are all about pomp and circumstance, always looking to brand themselves as, as part of the in crowd, as, as, as people that other people want to be like. And he's telling them, that's not what it looks like to follow a crucified Savior. If Jesus is your master, and if his life is a model for your life, look what he got, and that's what you should expect. He was shamed publicly, not celebrated. He was humiliated and ultimately killed. So Paul talks about his own life as carrying about in his own body something of the death of Jesus reproducing it, giving a visual aid to see it, that his own self-denial, his own suffering, is what God is using to spread knowledge of Jesus. The medium fits the message, in other words. That's, that fits with what Paul says in other places in this letter. I actually lean toward another view, though, of, of what Paul's role is in the procession. Not a condemned slave, but as an incense bearer. Another commentator pointed this out, that that actually helps to tie together everything Paul's saying. If we see Paul as one of those guys who would have been swinging a censer as he walked through town, part of this parade, yes, being led by the conquerors at the front, but different from the the, the captives or the slaves, Paul, Paul sees himself, in other words, as someone who's spreading this fragrance. He's walking along behind the conqueror, Swinging that burning incense, responsible just for putting the aroma out into the air. He just puts it out in front of the noses of whoever happens to be there, wherever he goes. God's doing the spreading of knowledge, but he's using Paul to do it. 
Now, this view of what, what's Paul's job and what isn't Paul's job, I think it's really important for understanding what Paul says next and for seeing how we're supposed to be shaped by what Paul's saying. Remember, if Paul's this incense bearer, he's following God's victory, God's victory spreads through all the earth, he's just the guy swinging the censer, spreading the aroma of who God is and what he's done in Christ. If Paul's the incense bearer in this image, then his job is to spread aroma. He can't be responsible for what that aroma smells like. He can't be responsible for making people like what it smells like. The incense is just given to him. It's not his. He doesn't build it. He doesn't tweak it to make sure that it suits every nose that he happens to pass. He just swings that incense, spreads that fragrance. Same aroma wherever he goes. Different responses. That's where he goes in verse 16. Verse 15, he said, We're to the aroma of Christ to God. And we're the aroma of Christ to God, both among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. And he says in verse 16, to one, this aroma that we swing is a fragrance from death to death. They smell the incense as it passes them. And being dead, there's no response. If anything, it just reinforces their death. It smells to them like death. The fragrance reaches someone who's alive To the other, he says, fragrance from life to life. They smell it and it stirs the life that's in them. It helps them press deeper into it. Enjoy it, savor it more. Same message, two different responses. Same smell, two different reactions to it. I think what he's getting at is that to those who are perishing already, when they hear what Paul says about God and the gospel, it'll smell like death to them unless there's some new life created in them. In fact, that message is only going to reinforce their death, their hostility to God and the gospel. To those with with spiritual life in them, when they hear what Paul is saying, they smell the aroma he's putting off, they move on from life to life, deeper and deeper into encouragement and joy in what God is and in what he's done. You go back to the Super Bowl analogy I used. You guys got to bear with me. This is my last chance to use a football analogy and have it be current for a while. <laughs> go back to that same football analogy from earlier, right? Tomorrow or Tuesday, Atlanta or Boston is going to have a parade. And let's just say it's Boston. I'll be rooting for the Falcons, but let's just say it's Boston. Odds are. Now imagine you're part of that city and you're a Pats fan. And you hear the news of the victory and you see Tom Brady's smiling face and Bill Belichick's more pleasant than usual grimace (laughs) passing by you. That's going to stir up in you an even deeper love and affection for what's just happened. The knowledge of it moves you from life to life. But imagine you're a Jets fan. You're the sworn mortal enemy of anything having to do with the Patriots and their success. You're going to see that same parade, if not in person, then on screen. You'll see that same parade and the exact same message, the exact same pomp and circumstance is going to move you from death into death into death. (laughs) Same message, different response. 
depending on your posture towards what it is that's being told. Paul's saying, I can't control the responses. That's not my job. That's what God's doing. God is the one bringing people into relationship with him. What I do is spread the message, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ to God. I think verse 17 just confirms that this is, way, this is the way Paul's thinking about his job. At the end of verse 16, he's thrown up his hands and he said, who's sufficient for these things? I want people to live. I don't want them to die. But to some, my message leads from death to death. To others, my message leads to li- from life to life. I want everybody in the life column, but who's sufficient for these things, he says. It's a rhetorical question. You're supposed to know nobody's sufficient for these things. You can't make someone respond with death or with life. In verse 17, Paul's saying, I'm not even trying to. I've given it up. Look what he says. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, men who are singly focused, who are aimed only at an accurate and true description of what's been given to them. Men who aren't speaking out of both sides of their mouth, who aren't trying to sell you something by holding back part of the truth. Men of sincerity, we speak in Christ, commissioned by God and in the sight of God. Now, let me just make sure this is really clear. Paul here, what he's doing is, he's saying, don't think of me when you think of someone who's trying to sell you something, right? He's referring to those false teachers who had come into Corinth after he left and tried to tell people that it, if, they want, if they want to get ahead in life, they should choose Jesus, right? Jesus is the way to climb that social ladder you want to climb so badly. He'll give you wealth, he'll give you fame, he'll help you with polish so that you're part of the end parties wherever you go. That they've, been telling, they've been describing Christianity as a source of strength rather than an opportunity through our weakness to prove God's strength. They'd been selling them something that they already wanted. They'd been trying to pitch Jesus to them using the things they knew the Corinthians were already into, like fame and wealth and prestige and whatever. They're peddlers, Paul is saying. What is a peddler? It's a huckster. It's a salesman. It's someone who has a response they're going for in you, and they're going to tailor their message to make sure they get the response that they want. They're aimed at results. And they want to pull the right strings on the puppet to make sure they get the results they want. They are performers. You are their audience. They are performing to get something from you. That's what a peddler would do. Paul's saying, I'm out of that game. I'm not a peddler. I have gotten a commission from God. I have been given a message to pass on. And every time I pass it on, I pass it on in his sight. He is my audience, not you. I think that's what Paul's saying in verse 17. He's not a peddler, he's an ambassador. He speaks on behalf of one who's in authority over him. He speaks a message he didn't come up with that he doesn't have the right to change. And he speaks it truly and simply and straightforwardly because he believes it's the only thing that will offer you any true and lasting hope. 
He can't be responsible for one response or another. That's above his pay grade. He's under authority. Doing background reading for this passage, trying to uh, get to a better understanding of it, I came across this image from a Danish philosopher from almost 200 years ago, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He had this powerful image that I think works so well for what Paul's trying to do here. What he's saying about his own role. What he's doing and what God is doing. Kierkegaard talk, talked about it as, uh, he, he used the image of a theater. Right? In a theater you have performers and you have an audience. Now, often, and certainly in the case of Paul's opponents in Corinth, the people would be seen as the audience. And God, or the person who's spreading the message, and the message itself, the performer. And it's the job of the performer to try to win over the people in the audience, to try to impress them, entertain them, convince them. Whatever it is, they're the focus, and it's the performer's job to please them. Paul is flipping that script. He sees all of us as performers on a stage for an audience that includes the God who made us, the God on whose power we depend for every breath we've ever taken, and the God who as our maker has a right to expect that our lives will be aimed at his glory, not ours. Everything we do Everything Paul does is done for God as audience, not for them. He's taken a message he received and he's passing it on wherever he goes and he leaves everything else to God. He's not trying to, con- not trying to, trying to persuade you to like it. Now, we can abuse that. There's plenty of places in Paul's own ministry where he clearly cared deeply for the people he was talking to, tried to understand them on their terms, and tried to help them see how beautiful and wonderful and relevant Jesus was to the things they were dealing with. But Paul here is pushing back against an attitude in this one particular city. Their issue was not that they were being too gruff with people in their, in their evangelism, that they were just telling it like it is and moving on. Their issue was that they wanted fame. They wanted to be insiders, They wanted people to want to be like them. They needed to hear what many of us need to hear. That the gospel is not some sort of platform for proving ourselves again. It is a message that's true whether we like it or not. To be received or not under God. But not to be changed by any one of us. And that sets us up for this. What I want to do with the last couple of minutes here. I want us to think about what we should do. If this is what God is doing, and if Paul has helped, given us some insight into what he's doing, if what God is doing is spreading knowledge of himself everywhere, if he's on a victory march through the whole world so that every tribe and every tongue has people in it that love him and know him and rest on him, if that's what God is doing, and if Paul's job is simply to spread the fragrance wherever he can go, to just swing that incense censer, to put the message about what God has done in Christ out there so that people have a chance to respond to it. What should our job be? How should we respond? I want to give you at least three things. I'm going to give you three things. There's not only three, but I'm going to give you three. 
What do we learn here about what, how we should respond? Number one, I think we should accept this gospel. We should accept the gospel that Paul's offering us even now in this letter. He's going to say a lot more about it in a moment. I just want to summarize it for you in case you're not familiar with it. The message of the gospel, the only hope that any of us have as Christians, is that even though we have turned against the God who made us, even though we've taken everything he's given us and turned it for our own purposes instead of his, even though, whether we know it or not, we've made ourselves his enemies, that God has chosen to make peace with us. He didn't just send us a teacher. He didn't send us new laws that maybe we'd do a better job of keeping. He sent us his own son who took on a body just like ours, who lived a life that we should have lived perfect without any stain of sin, who died a death he didn't deserve so that he could give us his righteousness, forgiveness that's free, cleansing that leaves us pure, who would rise again from the grave so that we don't have to die. And who calls us now to trust him. To trust him enough to give him every part of our lives. To stop aiming our lives at what we hope to gain. To stop insisting on our own individual right to decide what to do with who we are and what we have. And to submit everything to his lordship over us. That's the message of the gospel and the first thing I think we should learn from this is that we should accept it. Now, here's what I mean. I want to talk especially now to you if you're here this morning as an unbeliever or as a believer who's struggling with a particular kind of doubt. All of us struggle with doubt. Doubt comes in lots of forms. I want to speak to one particular form of it this morning. This could be for you as a believer or an unbeliever. There's a particular kind of doubt that morphs into a kind of aloof, even condescending detachment where you sort of sit back and wait for Jesus or his message or his people to prove himself or themselves to you. Where the burden of proof for you loving and living from this gospel is on the gospel. Just based on what Paul has said, I want to ask you a question. If the message about Jesus, what he's done and what he calls for from you, if that smells rotten to you, have you considered that that may say more about you than it does about the message? It's typical for us to put the burden of proof on the message. That's not completely wrong to do. Sometimes Paul does give arguments for why this message makes sense, for why it's worth trusting for how its relevance shows up in our lives for real. There's a place for that. But I want to invite you to at least consider another angle this morning. That, that when you hear this message, what matters most is not how the message seems to you, where you're the judge and the message is on trial, where you're the audience and the message is performing for your approval. But how you respond to the message before God. If it doesn't sound right to you, it could be because the message is foolishness. 
It could be that that message is only believable by people who haven't traveled outside the little isolated enclaves they live in or people who have nothing left to live for and are clinging to hope. That could be why it doesn't sound right to you. It could also be because you're spiritually dead. The difference between an uneducated rural grandma like mine who's holding to Jesus for dear life and yourself may not be the difference between smart and not or cosmopolitan and isolated or discriminating versus gullible or refined versus rural. It may be the difference between dead versus alive. The Corinthians were all about discriminating taste. They were looking for new things, to be insiders on something new that would help them climb the social ladder. They wanted to be able to quote something or someone that others would respect or envy. They wanted signs of their own intelligence and good taste. And God is all about turning over those expectations. He loves to confound the wisdom of the wise. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is full of language like this. He loves to take what's foolish, show it to be true, and use that to shame those who thought they knew better. He loves to turn our expectations on their head and he won't give you another platform for proving yourself. He's not going to do that. So maybe you're asking, what do I do then? That's kind of bleak. You're just telling me that maybe I'm dead and that's why I don't like this message about Jesus. I don't want to just leave you there. Here's what I want to tell you. Jesus tells you to repent and believe. A great place to start would be to pray to God, to ask him for insight, to ask him to give you a sense of smell that's alive and not dead, to confess to him your arrogance and self-sufficiency, to repent and to believe. I think that what Paul said here is actually kind of liberating. What he's saying is you don't have to wait on some standard that till now hasn't been met. Some sort of burden of proof that's got to be reached before you can rationally and, and, and worthily accept what Jesus has said. The difference between loving it and not is spiritual death versus spiritual life, he said. So, you don't have to wait until you can argue, out-argue anyone who might come against you. You don't have to wait until you know it better than you, th- than you think you do now. Just accept his offer to you and choose to live as if it's true. Submit to it. You can do that this morning. No one's stopping you. I'd love to talk to you more about that if that sounds interesting to you. So we should accept the gospel. I think it's the first response. We should accept it. Not judge it, but embrace it. Here's the second thing, and much more quickly, we should share this gospel. We should share it. That's what Paul's doing. That's what we've been called to do. We can't control how people respond. I've been held back so much in my life from boldly talking about Jesus by a fear that I can't answer any question that person might have for me. By a fear that I might actually be exposed for having a fraudulent faith because I can't convince anyone who might have questions. 
And Paul's model here calls us to give that up. We are not going to ever be able to convince everybody that we talk to that they should be more like us and believe in Jesus because it really makes more sense of the world. I actually think it does make a whole lot more sense of the world, but that's not the standard that we have to meet. Being able to prove that is not what you have to wait for before we can actually talk to somebody about what he said. Paul says, we're just incense bearers. We've got censers filled with message that wasn't ours. It's just been given to us, and we don't have to make it smell good. We just have to spread that smell. That's all our job is. So don't be held back by your limitation or by your fear about how people respond or then how you'll respond or whatever they may ask or say. You're not on trial when you share this message. It's not about you at all. You don't have to have persuasive power. God does. So, so the calling here is for us to just be very liberal in how we spread that fragrance. The co-workers who seem completely uninterested, who cares if they're uninterested? Tell them about Jesus. In relationship with refugees who shouldn't have any interest, whose whole culture, background, language, everything works against them having any interest in Jesus, share it with them anyway. It's not to you to persuade them. God is spreading the knowledge of himself everywhere. With those trapped in generational cycles that seem unbreakable, You don't have to set them free. You have to tell them about the one who sets them free. Maybe you should even sell everything you have and move overseas. You can't do that if you think the only way to make it worthwhile is your ability to convince somebody in another culture that Jesus is worth it once you get there. You'll never take the risk. But if your job isn't, to convince people, but to spread the fragrance. That can't fail. There's a guaranteed end to this thing that we're on together, this mission. It ends in heaven with people from every tribe and tongue worshiping Jesus because he's spreading the knowledge of him everywhere. And finally, we should accept the gospel. We should share it. Finally, we shouldn't tamper with it. I'm not going to unpack this one. Partly because I don't have time and partly because it's, it's the least directly relevant, but I do want to end on it. We don't talk much about why we do things the way we do things in our church, sort of ministry philosophy. But I think this passage is a good opportunity to at least drop in a little nugget here at the end. When we come together on Sunday mornings, our promise to you is that we won't treat you as customers. We won't treat you as a theater audience where you come to consume what we provide, where we're trying to get a certain response from you and just looking for the right buttons to push. We promise we won't be peddlers to, your, to you as customers. Rather, we view you and want you to view yourselves as participants in what happens here. God is our audience. All of us are just trying to respond to him in a way that he deserves in light of who he is and what he's like. We're not going to change the message or try to make it look better than it is to please you, but simply call on you to join us in the work of taking this message that's given to us and in the sight of God, responding to it together in a way that honors him and encourages us. So think about how you can join this work 
Think of yourself as a participant in it. I'm going to pray now that God will help us to do this work together. Father, thank you for spreading the knowledge of yourself to us. For every Christian in the room, uh, a miracle has happened. Something that once sounded like death to them now sounds like life. Something that once smelled rotten now smells beautiful and wonderful. You did that work. We want to see more transformation happen, so we ask you to continue to do it and to use us. In Jesus' name, amen.